Hello and welcome to the Research and Innovation Podcast. I am Marina Papanastasiou. I'm a professor of international business at the Department of International Business and the Center for International Business at the University of Leeds, known as CIBU. Today, we're going to have a, a chat with my colleague, Peter Buckley, who is a professor of international business and also is the founding director of the Center for International Business at the University of Leeds. Today, we're going to chat actually about the new challenges for multinationals within the fractured global economy. So, hello, Peter. Here Thank we go you, again. Here we go again to discuss issues that they are of crucial importance in these very days that we are living and actually also concern our field. And the key words here is a fractured world. And the fractured world, as the Chinese and the U.S. relationships have turned it into, and also the war in Ukraine. What does this mean for international business? What does this mean for the role of multinational in this very volatile and fractured world? Yes, I think, as the Chinese say, we live in interesting times. I mean, the the things that you've already alluded to are the the fracture in the world economy between what we might call an American camp and a, and a Chinese camp, US and allies, the, the West and China camp. And in addition to that, I think multinationals face a lot of increasing political pressure. And also they are subject to much more um, highlighting of their role from civil society. So the multinationals need to show a lot of resilience. And if we begin by looking at the fracture between China and um, America, this has important ramifications for global value chains. Because it's not just a matter of producing in your home country and exporting or indeed investing in the other side of the fracture. It's about all the elements of the global value chain. And this raises really interesting issues for companies that tap into or are related to suppliers and so on in in global value chains, because are they going to be excluded from one side if they choose the other side. Now, usually this is taken from a very American perspective and people talk about deglobalization from an American perspective. But when we look at um, the flaws of foreign direct investment and trade, they haven't dropped that dramatically. And this is because multinationals are able to adapt. I mean, one of the key features of multinationals is their adaptability. But I do think over the longer run, we're liable to see important changes. There's a very interesting article in The Economist recently that talked about Alt-Asia, Alternative Asia. So looking at where they might move to, were they absolutely forced to do so by this fracture? And if you imagine a great crescent of countries starting in Japan and then going all the way down Southeast Asia to Indonesia and all the way around to India and Bangladesh. This is Alt-Asia. These are the countries that multinationals might choose if they left China. And the if is quite a big if because multinationals have been operating in China very successfully for a considerable time. And in many ways, China is an ideal 
environment. It's it's got abundant labour, or it had labour is becoming much more expensive. It's got a good infrastructure. It's got a large home market. So none of the other countries on their own can really match China at the moment. Companies are moving to Vietnam and so on, and Vietnam is doing very well. But the point about Alt-Asia is it's unintegrated. You can't easily do business between, say, Indonesia and India, as you can in parts of China. So the fracture, to some extent, is exaggerated in the short run, but I don't think it will be in the long run. One other point that you mentioned there, I think is really important, and that is the impact of the war in Ukraine and the impact on Russia. And a recent study has shown that only 9%, so less than one in 10 multinationals who said they were going to withdraw from Russia have actually withdrawn. So this shows the inertia in the system, how difficult it is to restructure and change a whole value chain. So although the fracture is there, I think we're talking about more important changes in the medium and long term than we are in the short term. The other thing to say about that is this goes along with economic changes anyway, in that the rate of wage rates in China have rocketed and it's very difficult to get the kind of skilled labour that you need. The other point, of course, is the semiconductors issue and the fact that the embargo on semiconductors has real ramifications. I was talking to a very good graduate of ours in China this week who cannot get a job in China because of the problems with semiconductors in the sectors of the industry that he's in. So this is having real effects. So we've got real immediate effects from semiconductors and so on. But we've got much longer run changes that multinationals are going to have to cope with as these, we should say, plural fractures perhaps occur in the world economy. And the final thing to say, of course, is the impact on the Internet. The infrastructure of doing global trade is being fractured and we have the so-called splinter net where it's not easy to do business across um, across different national internets that are being deliberately targeted. So these roles of protectionism and all the other effects in the longer run, I think will have a profound effect, but this will take time. You cannot just easily rejig a global value chain overnight. Thank you so much, Peter. And when you, while you were talking, I was thinking um, all the analysis that we have been developing has been focused on the economic side of things. But um, implicitly, and we we also, I mean, have a very serious political dimension. You mentioned that only 9%, if I'm correct, of the companies that they were supposed to leave Russia because of sanctions left. You also mentioned that um, it's business as usual for the large multinationals so far in China, although alternative Asia is rising. So um, through current research that we have been doing at the department, myself and colleagues and also at Sibyl, we have paid attention to the political role of the multinational, actually. And um, as you know, I'm doing research on the innovation side of the multinational, the innovation strategies. And I also noticed, and we also noticed, myself and my co-authors, that um, 
we probably have neglected the political side of the multinational because we see that, for instance, this 9% that you mentioned or the China issue, um, multinationals do not listen to the um, to the advice or they don't abide by the recommendations, sanctions, laws by their home countries. They have their own mindset. You said that they adapt. So we have stakeholders which not only involve the multinationals vis-a-vis their host economies but also vis-a-vis their home economies we don't see this alignment in in goals so um what i would suggest and i would i want your opinion on that have we ignored for a quite long time the political role of the multinational now that we live in this fractured world we see that they have their own political agenda they don't follow the rules. And, and since you mentioned the semiconductor issue, you know, in July, the U.S. government voted for the CHIPS Act. And, um, and a lot of financial incentives were aligned with the CHIPS Act. Still, um, <laughs> I, we haven't noticed any late strong reshoring to the U.S. I mean, still, it's, uh, we have outward investment in uh, abroad on the semiconductors. And based on some recent data of the FDI markets, this database of the Financial Times, we see that also investment in semiconductors in China. So this lack of alignment and this conflict, let's say, of interests maybe point to the political role. So what is your view on that? I agree entirely. I think the I think international business took what Mark Casson and I called a boardroom view. The lo- a lot of international business takes the view of the chief executive or the managers of multinationals. And perhaps we need more of what we might call a bird's eye view. We need to look at the multinationals role in the global economy. And I think some work I've been doing, I call it three vectors of power. I mean, if we think of the if we think of the multinational conducting its strategy, as you pointed out, it doesn't have a free choice of strategy. It can't do everything it likes. So what are the constraints on multinationals? The first constraint is the most obvious one, which is the market that you have to produce goods and services that people want. You have to adapt to your goods and services across the world. And this has been meat and drink to international business for a long time, adaptation, local versus global, all these kind of issues. So you're operating in multiple markets and the market pressure on multinationals is a major factor. The second factor is, of course, regulation. I mean, we've been talking a lot here about the changing regulations on multinationals. And in fact, protectionism and all these acts that are being produced to to protect semiconductors, so-called security industries are now much wider to include infrastructure and so on. And a whole raft of measures in America, meaning effectively that industrial policy is back. You know, we now have fully fledged industrial policy. And a lot of these industrial policies, as you point out, are national. They're not international. They're they're in the national interest. So multinationals have to deal with multiple regulations. And as you say, one of the ways they try and do that is through so-called non-market strategies, which is lobbying and trying to influence people, the great and the good and consumers and everyone who has all their stakeholders. So that factor also is, is great. So we have the market. We have government regulation. But the third thing we have 
is the pressure from civil society because it's be become more and more obvious the role of multinationals and large firms across the board impact on what we used to call pressure groups and we we now call the voice of civil society so people are demanding that that multinationals comply with the, the sustainable development goals of the UN or have sustainable policies, energy transition issues. So the way to look at a strategy of multinationals, I think, is that it's not just a free choice. It is a matter of being enclosed by these three forces of the market, governments, because you're dealing with international government and civil society. And again, civil society has an international dimension because what civil society is asking of the same firm in California is not the same as is being asked in Nigeria or Ghana, where attitudes, cultures are very, very different. So again, multinationals are in a really interesting place trying to balance off different market pressures, different government pressures, and different civil society pressures in all the countries in which they operate. So, you know, again, what we're highlighting is how fascinating and important international business is and how multinational enterprises are right at the centre of all these issues. They simply cannot avoid it. You cannot just say, I'm a business firm, I'm walking away from this, I just produce goods and services. It's just not possible. I have just one last point that I would like to raise with you. You talked about uh, national industrial policies, which I totally agree. I mean, we see that. And in a paper that we're doing with colleagues dealing with exactly these issues, we said that we talked about the liability of foreignness. Are we in a period that we may talk of the liability of at-homeness now? <laughs> I think the role of the, the national is, is, is back. You know, there was, I, I wrote a piece recently, which is still not finished, about the difficulties of being of entrepreneurship, that the golden age of entrepreneurship may well be over, that you can't simply innovate and expect that innovation to go all across the world in a seamless way. And we talked about the reasons why not. So when you when you have a new product or you're developing a product, these are all the issues that, that have to be taken into account. And this does sound kind of pessimistic, but but I don't think it is, because I think the, the factor that we also have to bring in is the resilience of multinationals that over the years, I mean, we're talking about institutions that go back to at least the East India Company and probably way beyond that. We're talking about an institution that can evolve and change. And this is this is the crucial issue about resilience, that companies have to look at this in as an adaptation to these factors over time. So some things you can do immediately, like build your inventories or adapt a product. Other things take longer. And of course, we are observing that in the medium term, multinationals are thinking about the kind of things we've talked about, regional headquarters, building alliances, changing locations for things. These take time. But I think if we were doing this podcast 10 years from now, we'd be looking at very, very different configuration of global value chains than we see now. And there wouldn't be, some of this inertia will 
disappear over time as companies have to adapt. And let's hope we can we can talk about a world that is less fractured by war and pestilence and all the other COVID and all the rest of it. And look, because these things have real lasting influence. I mean, there's a thing called hysteresis, which means that you can't immediately adapt to changes. But in the longer run, things become more flexible and multinationals are the ideal institution to deal with that. I mean, I often say it's one of my favourite sayings that multinationals are part of the problem, but also part of the solution. And and I think that that becomes very, very evident when we talk about the kind of issues that we've talked about today. Thank you so much, Peter. And just a point, I mean, I know hysteresis is what it means because I'm Greek. So we shared the word to the, the word to the world. Another gift so, from the Greek. Another gift, another gift. Thank you so, so much. It's been very educating. Thank you so much. Thank you for the questions and the comments, Marina. Thank you very much. Thank you. So, dear listeners, if you are interested in finding out more about what we have discussed, you can find our details in the episode show notes, but also a lot of the things that Peter and I discuss about our research can be found on the Sibyl's webpage, as well as at the, the Department of International Business webpage. Thank you and goodbye.